not only when a trauma happens, does it create a chemical change in the DNA, but it also leaves clues behind in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 236. Today, we're talking about healing generational trauma with Mark Wolin. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. A Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course and membership, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. I am so glad you're here, so glad to be in your ears. So good to connect again. 236 episodes. Oh my goodness. And if you're brand new, this is such an awesome episode to start with. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Mark Wolin, and he is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco and the author of It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. It's a winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award in Psychology. This is such an awesome conversation. You know, this whole idea that we blame ourselves and we're so hard on ourselves for our reactions and our harmful reactions. And Mark explains how traumas and harmful patterns get passed on from one generation to the next, literally in the, in the, the biology of it all. It's fascinating. We also talk about the power of mindfulness and other modalities to really help us heal these hurts for goods. I want you to listen for a few key takeaways. This is so important, actually. Really listen up. One that is so important is by rejecting our parents, we share or repeat their life patterns. Whoa, right? So if we're pushing them away, we end up sharing or repeating the same patterns. This is huge, right? Listen for the fact that trauma stays within family's genetic code, changing the way genes express, and how to transform trauma, we must practice the feelings and sensations of positive experiences. Whoa, like this whole episode just blew me away, which you're going to hear. Um, before we dive in, I want to let you know that the, you can sign up now for the Mindful Parenting free training, and we do some of this work. That's the most exciting thing is that we kind of, we do, this is the work that we do in the Mindful Parenting membership where we bring together mindfulness, self-compassion, and skillful communication, and we do this in the membership, and this is why we're doing the free training to give everyone a taste of it. So it's so exciting. It's coming up September 9th through 14th. You can sign up now and get some free little goodies to get you started. I'll be learning why your kids don't listen to you, how to stop yelling, parenting during the pandemic, and three myths that keep you from being the parent you want to be. So it's so, so powerful. People get so much out of this free training. Make sure you sign up now. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. 
I can't wait to see you there and meet you there. That will be so cool. Make sure you tell me you're a podcast listener when you get into the Facebook group. All right, let's dive into this powerful episode. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Hunter. I'm so glad you could be here. And I'm so excited about your work because as I said, I talk about generational patterns and you talk about generational patterns big time. And for me, I had the biggest sort of discovery of the way things repeat themselves um, when my youngest daughter, my oldest daughter was two years old and my temper came up. And I really had, I found myself getting very angry and very, very triggered and yelling. And it, I was so shamed and appalled because this was exactly what I didn't want to do. And I, yeah. I sat with it and I looked with it and I saw that it was, this was the same temper that my father has, you know, and, and his, you know, his anger was, was a real big deal in my life when I was a little kid and he still, you know, he has a big temper. And of course then, you know, we can, I can see it in, in his family too, but I could see that I was like this feeling of like her big feelings were like unacceptable to me. Uh, and I could see that it was because it, you know, I could see that when I was little, my big feelings were unacceptable to my dad. So it, it made it feel like, oh my gosh, this is completely unacceptable. And so that feeling came back to me as an adult dealing with my child. And I was like, oh my goodness, here it is. Here's this thing just repeating itself in exactly the way I didn't want it to happen. And I could, I could really see that, oh, this is how this happens. I got this feeling it was unacceptable as a kid. So now I'm repeating exactly what my father did. And I could see that the suffering that was in me was in my father, right? And my father suffered as a little kid in, in the, some of the same ways and worse ways, right? Being beaten with a, a strap and et cetera. And, um, and you know, I, I can only imagine the suffering that went on before that, right? And my ancestors. And so I, I could really see that this was like a pattern and I was going to perpetuate it with my kid if I didn't do some work to kind of heal it and to transform it and to understand it. And I, as I read your book, it didn't start with you. I thought, oh, this is a similar thing here, right? This is a similar thing going on. Is that, would you say that it was a, it was a pattern like that? Yeah. You know, when we, when our parents can't tolerate our big emotions or um, our expression, our exuberance, our self-will, um, self-volition, um, often we have to look behind and see what happened to our parents, what happened to our dad that um, he'd go into outbursts of anger. And, you know, when I, it, it's funny, people, um, when they give me labels, you know, a label of self-absorbed, narcissistic, whatever the label is, I always look behind that label. And for example, when someone would say, oh, my, my mom or my dad is self-absorbed, and what I hear is that their parents couldn't be uh, absorbed enough in, in the child. And so the child had to become self-focused or um, oversee himself or herself. So very much so, what we're talking about is right in line under. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's, it was very interesting too, because I got to talk to my father about this in a very wonderful way. I remember him sitting on a futon as he stayed at my house one time. And he said to me, you know, oh, well, you're not trying not to yell at your kids. And, you know, I tried to not hit you with the belt. I just spanked you. And it's like, it's like, okay, well, you know, but he was seeing this pattern, this kind of healing improving. And, and this is where, you know, these, the healing of patterns and seeing that these, some of these things, these triggers that come up for us in, for uh, specifically in parenting here in the mindful mama sort of world, but also in other kind of areas in the, these triggers come up for us. And it's not, people I think tend to blame themselves for it, but I think what, what I got from, you know, it didn't start with you is that these are patterns that started way, way, way before you were, maybe even before you were even born. And then maybe we should, we should not be blaming ourselves so much as trying to understand these, these threads. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, just, you know, maybe a definition of inherited family trauma, Mm. um, a loose definition, you know, something happens, something traumatic happens to one of our parents or grandparents. Let's say they lost their mom or their dad when they were little, or they were sent away to boarding school or placed in an orphanage, or one of their siblings died tragically and this collapsed the family. Or um, a mother was pulled, uh, her focus was pulled away from her child. Maybe uh, there's stress in her relationship or she lost someone in uh, someone she loved, a great grief. The reaction to these traumas, it doesn't necessarily stop with the person who experienced the trauma. The feelings, the sensations, specifically the stress response, mm-hmm. um, this can be passed on to jo- children and grandchildren. And now we have biological evidence for this, and it's become this fascinating field. So we, um, you're exactly right when you say you were doing I'm doing my work to make sure this legacy of anger doesn't pass forward. And, and that's exactly where it lives. We have to do our inner work um, as well as uh, excavate, you know, become detectives of our family history and sort of excavate the source of where these um, patterns originated. So if, you know, all of these things can leave traumas, I mean, alcoholism, all the different events in life, you know, losing a child that you, you just listed all these events. I mean, every, it has to be almost like every single person around has some, some inherited family trauma or some suffering that is come, come back, come to them through their genetics or their upbringing, but, but specifically their genetics. And I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how these things are passed on biologically, because it's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So when, when a trauma happens, um, it, it really, it, it changes us. So specifically, um, it, it changes the way the genes express. Yeah. Um, there's a chemical change that occurs in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function, sometimes for generations. So technically, there's a chemical tag after a trauma. And this will attach to the DNA, and it'll tell the cells, hey, 
let's use or ignore these certain genes to enable us to better deal with this thing that just happened. And then the way that our genes are affected changes how we act or feel. For example, we can become sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to an original trauma, even if that trauma occurred in a past generation, so that we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. I'll give you an example of our grandparents, let's say. Um, they come from a war-torn country and they're experiencing bombs going off or bullets flying or uniformed people lining people up in the square um, uh, and there's killings or people being taken away. They would pass forward a skill set of, let's say, sharper reflexes or quicker reaction times, really reactions to the violence. Um, to help us survive the trauma that they experienced. But, but the problem is we can inherit a stress response with the dials set to 10. And here we are preparing for this catastrophe that never arrives because we're not born in a time of war. And then we rarely make this link that our, our anxiety, our anger, our hypervigilance, um, our depression is connected to our parents and our grandparents. We just think we're wired this way. You know, we say, this is how I am, but that's not true. You know, it's not how we are. We're carrying a generational blueprint. And, you know, these gene changes, as we're now learning, this is what's passed. This is what's transmitted to our children and even to our children's children, our stress response our grandmother's stress response, our father's stress response. And that's why we have to do this inner work to work with calming, um, calming the brain, really changing our brain. Yeah. Working with the nervous system is something I'm really interested in. And so you're talking about like this work you in the, in your book, you cite um, uh, a researcher named Yehuda who talks right. about uh, Holocaust survivals and, and, and survivors and how they 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 pass on the the same sort of like um, that the descendants carry these physical symptoms. I mean, it's I right. Mean, she was finding mm -hmm. she was finding that the children of the Holocaust survivors and their parents had the same trauma symptoms. Specifically, she was looking at the low levels of cortisol, the stress hormone that get that gets us back to normal after a stressful event. And then she found a similar pattern to the babies who were born to mothers um, who were at or near the World Trade Center when it was attacked during 9-11. If the mom went on to develop PTSD um, and she was pregnant at the time, her baby went on to develop PTSD. In fact, these babies were smaller for their gestational age and they were born with 16 genes that express differently than children who weren't born to pregnant mothers who were uh, uh, during 9-11. You know, she tells us, Rachel Yehuda specifically, and she's a, a neuroscientist from Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Medical School. She tells us that you and I are three times more likely to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder if one of our parents have PTSD, and then as a result, we're likely to struggle with anxiety or depression. 
So this is amazing because, I mean, when you think about this, I mean, I, I look at people and I, I personally see that, you know, everybody suffers, like we all suffer and um, in, in many different ways. But what you, this research is showing in so many ways is that, I mean, if we, can, if we think about the, the incredibly difficult um, conditions of the past, uh, the struggle for survival in so many ways, uh, immigrations and wars and slavery and, uh, and even just um, incredibly harsh parenting or whatever it is. I mean, everybody's got to have this, these sort of levels of suffering in it, in us. And in so, in so many ways, I think what your work and what the, all this work that you present in the book is inviting us to do is to just recognize, I love the title. It didn't start with you because it really is there. There's this, the, there are these pieces in us that are just turned on, right? These stress responses are just turned on and it's not something we choose. Exactly. It's not our fault. No one says, okay, you know, at 3 p.m. I'm going to lose it at my kid because they didn't listen to me. Uh, <laughs> um, it's something that, that happens and the more we can understand it and the more we can understand maybe even our parents and our grandparents, that starts us on that path of healing. Exactly. So, you know, in the book, one of the things I do is I teach the reader to become a detective of two things, family history, but also trauma language. Because, you know, we can't find it in ourselves, Hunter. You know, we just have a, react, a reactivity, a sudden reactivity, and we go to uh, yell at our kid. Um, so one of the ways I find that we can find our own trauma is to let our own our own inherited trauma is to listen to our trauma language because I found that not only when a trauma happens does it create a chemical change in the DNA, but it also leaves clues behind in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences, um, sentences we say. That, that this begins to form a breadcrumb trail. And when we, when we learn how to follow it, it's like finding the missing piece of a puzzle uh, lets the whole picture come into view and finally gives us a context of why am I screaming? Why am I shutting down to my partner? Why am I disconnected from one kid, but overconnected to the other kid? Why am I constantly worrying or stressed? So it's essential that we learn to listen to our own trauma language. We know from trauma theory that when a traumatic event happens, significant information bypasses the frontal lobes so the experience of what happens to us it can't it can't be named or ordered through words because our language centers become our language centers become compromised and then without language we know that our experiences uh, of the trauma get stored in a fragmented way fragments of memory fragments of body sensations uh, fragments of images, fragments of this trauma language, fragments of emotions. It's like the mind disperses and essential elements get separated. It, we lose the story of mm -hmm. the trauma and never complete the healing. That's the issue. Mm. Yet the pieces aren't lost. They, they've simply been rerouted in, and resurfaced in this verbal and nonverbal trauma language. So, for example, um, when our language is 
is verbal, our verbal trauma language will say, I'll be alone, I'll be abandoned, I'll go crazy, um, I'll lose control, I'll be locked up, I'll hurt somebody, I'll hurt a child. Those are examples of verbal trauma language. Mm. But when it's nonverbal, it creates a different type of language. You know, we look for the stream, the physical and emotional symptoms that show up after, say, an unsettling event in our lives. Or we look for the fears and anxieties that uh, strike suddenly when we reach a particular age. And often it's the same age that something happened in our family history. Um, or, you know, the, de the destructive behaviors that we do or our depression, you know, that, that arises after a situation that's similar to something in our family history. This nonverbal trauma language is, it's also mirrored in our relationship struggles, who we choose as partners. It's also seen in the repeated ways we deal with money success, all of this forms that breadcrumb trail. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. We are supported by Green Chef, a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle with meal plans including paleo, plant-powered, keto, and balanced living. We loved getting our Green Chef meals. They came in great packaging and it made it so easy. We've been making so many meals at home with the pandemic. We had so much fun making these meals. They had pre-measured sauces, dressings, and spices. You know, we got a lot of flavor in this food. It was very flavorful and it gave us all these ideas for the meals that we do make at home with our own ingredients. Green Chef lets you choose from a wide array of easy to follow lifestyles with select organic ingredients. They're quick and easy with step-by-step -step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. It was really easy. I could do it with my daughters. The ingredients are just pre-measured, perfectly proportioned, and mostly prepped. But it's so cool because it's the most sustainable meal kit because it offsets 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. You can switch up your meal plan whenever you're ready to try a new way to eat. And it really offers this huge variety of high quality, clean ingredients. So you really can feel great about what you're eating and how it gets to your table. But plus it just tastes so good. Use the code HUNTER80 to get $80 off your first month, plus free shipping on your first box. Go to greenchef.com slash hunter80 to redeem and for more details. That's hunter80 to get $80 off your first month plus free shipping on your first box. That's greenchef.com slash hunter80. So this, this, it's interesting because this language you talk about, like I'll be alone, I'll, I'll hurt a child. We, we often think of this as, as these sort of like extremes, right? Like these extremes of thought, right? But these are, but what your point, what you're saying is that these are actually like clues. Like these are clues that of something that may have happened in, in, your, in their past or in, in your parents' past or your grandparents' past. Exactly. I'll, I'll give you a case that explains yeah, it. So I, re I recently worked with this woman who developed cancer a few months after her dog died. And I was asking her to tell me about her dog. 
And she said, oh, I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me. And, and the way she said it, um, I wrote it down. You know, he was with me for 16 years. He was everything to me. And then I said, Let, let's talk about your family history. And twice in the family history was the same story. Her mother's favorite brother, the, the brother she adored, was killed in a car crash. And the mother was 16 at the time. And her brother was everything to her. And then the father, he was 16 years old when his father died suddenly of a stroke. And <clears throat> my client, who was an only child, carried the unresolved grief of both parents. Mm. And uh, so the verbal language, which we heard, I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me. And then having health issues after her 16-year-old dog died was part of her nonverbal. Those were the clues, the mm. nonverbal trauma language. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when we listen to a story, we both listen and look. We listen with our ears for what's how we tell the story, what's being said, what, you know, in the book I talk about our core complaint. You know, we want to listen to the language of our core complaint or our core sentence, which is our worst fear. You know, I ask that sentence in the book, what's, what's your worst fear? If the worst thing happened to you, if things uh, suddenly, if things suddenly went came undone, if things went terribly wrong, if things suddenly fell apart, what's your worst fear? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? And when you listen to the answers of that question, people will give you two types of trauma language. They'll give you either generational, trend, uh, gen, generational trauma language, like I'll hurt somebody, uh, I'll accidentally take someone's life, um, I'll be locked up, I'll I'll be sent away, I'll be ostracized, I'll be hated by my family. And that's a generational trauma language. Or it can go into an attachment trauma language. Like I'll be abandoned, I'll be left, um, there'll be no one there, um, I won't matter, I won't be important. You know, so I listen and I teach my students and I teach the reader really to mm -hmm. listen for two, type, two types of this trauma language. So we can go back into and do our genogram, our traumagram, and look in our family history, and to look for who else in the family might have had cause to feel the same way. You know, just like you did when you found yourself um, yelling at your, your child and then say, oh my goodness, my dad did this. So it's, it's, we do this kind of excavating and we have to look behind us for where these patterns, you know, just like you said, it didn't start with you, the name of the book. Um, a lot of times you're right, it does not start with us. We're merely the bear, the carrier of this blueprint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, the carrier of that blueprint and the carrier of like a nervous system that's primed for exactly <laughs> primed exactly. for survival. So it's all right. these N survival strategies, right? Not even our nervous system, you know, cause yeah. we, we inherit our mother's nervous system, our father's nervous system. That's right. It's so interesting because I, um, I've raised my daughters in the, in, um, where we, uh, go to a, uh, Buddhist monastery in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen, uh, Buddhist teacher. And in those, um, in the, in that tradition, they, 
they talk about this very specifically in a, in a way that's so interesting, saying that, um, you know, we practice for our ancestors. We practice to heal things for our ancestors and for the generations that come beyond us. And there's even a song that my daughter found really comforting for a long time when she was little that I would sing to her at night. And it says, um, uh, you know, no coming, no going, no after before. Um, and and, it, and it's, it repeats at the end, it says, because I am in you and you are in me, because I am in you and you are in me. And I really could see that that was true in so many ways. And I could see that that's sort of true bio, biologically, but it really is really true biologically. In, in fact, in, the, in this sort of like deeper emotional way, right, that we are in each in each other. And, and I thought it was fascinating. You pointed out, and someone pointed this out to me recently too, that, you know, before your mother was even born, your grandmother, your mother, and the earliest traces of you were all in the same body, three generations in the same biological environment. Um, uh, I don't know, the whole thing. (laughs) Kind of like blowing my mind, like all the, all yeah, of the I mean, thing, as well as this this biological component that's just so concrete, is 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 fascinating. Yeah, you know, epigenetics is just one piece of the puzzle, um, but you know, just what you're talking about, embryology. When our grandmother is five months pregnant with our mother, and our mother's still a fetus, our mother will have developed all the eggs that you ever produce because the female line, egg line stops dividing in the fifth month of um, uh, pregnancy or, or, or the in utero experience. So one of those eggs is gonna be you and me in our mother's womb, which is inside our grandmother's room, womb. And then when you combine, combine that with the work of Bruce Lipton, who talks about a mother's emotions, Um, are chemically communicated through the placenta, altering the genetic expression of the offspring, now you've got to think, oh my goodness, what about the emotions of our parents? And how how are we not affected just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, biologically? I mean, you you know, on my Facebook page, I always list the new studies um, that are out there. And there's, there's a recent study in Journal of American Medicine Psychiatry that followed mothers who suffered trauma as children and found that their daughters were more likely to suffer with depression and bipolar disorder. And then there's a, a recent Tufts University study that found that men who suffered trauma as children were able to pass their anxiety onto their children through their sperm and, and what was interesting is this is the first study to show that human sperm mirrored the same changes, the same non-coding RNA changes that the researchers find in mice that they're able to traumatize in the labs. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, the, the big thing in epigenetics. They take baby mice, they cause adversity to the mice by separating them from their moms or taking their moms and putting their moms in a glass tube and then you know, and then bringing the mother back so she's stressed out, which is mimicking our mothers being stressed out. And then they're looking at 
the biological effects being observed for three generations. You know, the same non-coding RNA alterations that they see in mice are now being observed in humans. And if we take a look even at the science, you know, RNA, that, that's copied from DNA. It acts as a messenger to instruct the cell's ribosomes to produce certain proteins, specific proteins. And, but cells also contain something called non-coding RNA, small non-coding RNA, and they don't produce proteins, but they piggyback on the messenger RNA, either interfering with or amplifying their function, causing more or less of these proteins to be produced, which is, to break it all down, affecting which genes get actively expressed. Mm. And so, um, yeah, the, we have now a biological trail, biological evidence, biological research showing what's happening. And, and the reason we look at mice is, you know, you can get only look for two generations in humans because how long does it take to get a generation in humans? 12 years, 20 years. But mice, we can get a, yeah, we can get a generation of mice in 12 to 20 weeks. And the reason they look at mice is mice share the similar genetic makeup as humans. Mm-hmm. Over 92, 93% of the genes in humans have counterparts in mice with over 80% being identical. So that's why they, you know, look at mice studies. I mean, there's such interesting research going on right now. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it, but no, I don't no, know what you're... I want to I want to talk a little bit about... I, I appreciate that because it's so... That concreteness of this research, I think, is so, so uh, reassuring in some ways. And I really want you dear listener to look at what mark is saying and not say oh no how can i blame myself for whatever stress i may have had when my child is in utero but instead look at yourself with some compassion and say oh just like everybody i am the recipient of all this of all the suffering of the world and that's not my fault and this it's hard <laughs> Not because of you or anything specific about you, but because it's hard and there has been a lot of suffering in the world that has been passed on. So you talk a lot of, you also talk about how to heal it. And you you have an, a quote that's really interesting about uh, from a psychotherapist who says, um, psychotherapy is about turning your ghosts into ancestors. And you also talk about visualization and meditation and other things. But I think that's so interesting, this idea of turning your ghosts into ancestors, right? Because a ghost is something that haunts you. It's scary. It's like driving your reactivity. But an ancestor is something you understand that you're not like so charged about necessarily, right? So can you talk to us a little bit more about this sort of path of healing. I mean, obviously we're yeah, all, yeah. we've all inherited this suffering. How do we start to transform it? Yeah, the, there's, I've only given the bad news. I know, we got to talk about some the, good news. We're all in the same boat and it's sinking. No, actually there's a, there's a ton of good news out there. So I, I want to go back to the research because, and then I'll talk about us as humans and what we do. But so the researchers are now able to reverse trauma symptoms in mice. And, and, the yeah. and the implications are, are really vast. So they take the mice that, that have been exposed to traumatic adversities, and then they expose them to positive experiences. And that changes the way their DNA expresses. Technically, it inhibits 
um, the enzyme that, that, that causes DNA methylation or histone modifications. Those are just other mechanisms along with non-coding RNA that causes this epigenetic transfer. But when the traumatized mice are exposed to positive experiences, it, it, it changes them. Uh, they, the researchers, one of them is a woman in Switzerland named, named Isabel Monsui at the Brain Institute at the University of Zurich. So she's taking these mice that have been traumatized and then placing them in positive, low-stress environments, and their trauma symptoms reverse. Their behaviors improve. Um, there's changes to the DNA methylation, and this prevents the symptoms from being transmitted to the next generation. Technically, they're no longer um, passing forward this fearful epigenetic signature to their children. And, and it's not just mice that benefit from positive experiences. It's how we as humans, how we heal. We've got to calm our brain's stress response, whether we've inherited that stress response from a parent or grandparent, or whether the trauma happened to us in our childhood. So again, going back to positive experiences, we've got to have positive experiences that can change our brain. And then we need to practice the, the feelings and the sensations associated with these positive experiences. Because when we do this, we not only create new neural pathways in our brain, we also stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine um, or, or, or feel-good hormones in our body begin to release like estrogen and oxytocin. But even the very genes involved in the body's stress response, that starts to function in a new way. So these positive experiences, it can be, like I teach in the book, experiences of receiving comfort and support, um, or feelings of compassion or gratitude, you know, practicing gratitude every day, or looking for where we can have compassion for ourselves or for our father who was um, angry, mm -hmm. um, or even developing a generosity practice where every day we do something um, special for someone. This, this actually turns our brain on or a practice of loving kindness, or practicing mindfulness. Ultimately, anything that allows us to feel strength or peace or joy inside, because these types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex and help us reframe the stress response so it is a chance to, to calm down. It is a chance to downregulate. It's amazing. This is so exciting for me to hear because it's, I find it sometimes um, challenging. People find it hard to say, uh, I should be kind to myself. Find it hard to say, I should take time for myself to be calming down. And I talk about it very much through about the stress response, but that idea that we you know, in that, in that idea that we cannot give what we, we, what we do not have, but you're saying that biologically that this is true, that these, this suffering that we have inherited, that these positive experiences, this experience of feeling good, feeling at peace, allowing ourselves and giving ourselves the chance to, to feel those compassion and loving kindness for ourselves and for others is actually then starting to transform things, even maybe physically in the body. Oh, absolutely. 
you know, there's the, you know, this is what we're talking about in neuroscience. We've got to pull energy away from the, the amygdala, the limbic brain, you know, the limbic system and bring engagement to the forebrain, specifically the free prefrontal cortex where we can integrate the, the experiences, you know, to basically to put it in a nutshell, um, you know, you and I are probably talking about the same thing, but we need to practice being with the sensations in our body first. Of course, they, you know, we find those sensations uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. we have to practice being with what's uncomfortable in our body. And then we're able to reach beneath what's uncomfortable and be with the sensations that we experience as life-giving, sensations like pulsing, sensations like tingling, softening, uh, expanding, blood flowing. You know, we feel waves of energy, waves of warmth. And then we need to be able to hold sensations in our body like this that we experience as positive for, you know, for at least a minute, you know, 60 seconds and, and do that six times a day. And that can be enough to calm uh, our stress response. That can be enough to change our brain. They definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it? who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside mindfulparentingcourse.com. Wow. I, I, um, I'm so heartened by this. So part of the, part of the healing, kind of what I'm hearing you say is that part of the healing is understanding, 
understanding where, why, where, what these triggers are, what are the area, where are the areas we have suffered or where are the areas our parents have suffered. And then part of the healing is then to start to come back into our bodies and feel these sensations that, uh, that probably you're, you're saying at first it's very uncomfortable. Like these are things that we very much resist at first. Oh, of course. We, we avoid it like the plague. Yeah. Nobody wants to feel the intolerable loneliness that lives in our body or the aloneness we inherited generations, uh, generationally from our grandmother who was an orphan. You know, and then we have this cascade of, of, of uh, uh, you know, both that trauma language, that attachment trauma language of I'll be alone, there'll be no one there. Um, and then the feelings that um, accompany that in the body, um, this terrible, uh, intolerable loneliness that, that instead of feeling, we jump on the cell phone to get a hit, hit of dopamine by, by liking something on Facebook or Instagram, you know, because that makes us feel better or we, you know, we avoid it. We eat, we drink, we exercise. We'll do anything to avoid these feelings in the body. But when we practice what's, when we practice being with what's uncomfortable in the body, we reach what's beneath it. You know, those life-giving sensations like, oh, wait a minute. If I sit with this tightness, long enough, beneath it is just pulsing, or beneath it is just stillness, or beneath it is just my blood flowing, my circulation, my heart beating. And when we can stay with breath, pulsing, uh, tingling, softening, you know, the sensations I mentioned, you know, we're, this is what transforms us. It's mindfulness. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I love this. So, but it sounds like also... Um, you know, your work is very much centered on language and the story and the family too. So I think a lot of people, for very good reasons, have a lot of resistance in uh, maybe looking at their own family history or, or wanting to, you know, a lot of resistance to offering forgiveness to their, their, their parents for the unskillful ways their parents were because their parents suffered. Um, how do you start to encourage people to to open up to these ideas? Well, one of the things I teach is we often, through rejecting our parents, merge with what it, unconsciously join with what's, been, what's negative. <laughs> you know, it's, um, so for instance, when I talk about the four unconscious themes in the book, and one of them is merging with a parent, where we share a repeat a piece of our parents' life situation or our parents' life experience or our parents' misfortune as an unconscious way of bonding with them. So, you know, we're doing it anyway, whether we reject or push away from that parent or we're close to that parent. As long as we remain unconscious to these influences, um, we're reliving. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're reliving. So um, it, it's important to look at family history and it's important to even look behind our parents. You know, if we just have a label on our dad as a narcissist or our mom is cruel, mm -hmm. that means we never go beyond that to look at what happened to him. And it goes back to what I said in the very beginning of the podcast. If our dad is self-absorbed, his mother wasn't able to be absorbed 
with him because of traumas that pulled her away. Maybe grandpa was an alcoholic or maybe they lived during the depression or maybe, um, you know, there's, there's a myriad of events that caused her not being able to see her son. So her son develops the um, defense of only seeing himself. And so we label it as narcissist. But if we look more deeply, oh, he wasn't seen. So he has to see himself to feel better. Mm -hmm. And behind our mother's cruelty, if, if that's the label we've placed on that, what really lives there? What really lives? Um, maybe she was disconnected from her own mother. And maybe um, she didn't get what she needed as a child. So, you know, it's that practice of compassion, not only for ourselves, but that practice of compassion for everyone in our family history and what they experienced that broke their hearts and then rigidified the family and caused us to reject or exclude or push away, you know, people in the family. Because what I found in my practice is the more we, we reject somebody, the more we push them away, um, the more we tend to repeat. <laughs> you, know, it, you know, people always ask me, Mark, what makes traumas repeat? And what I've seen, look, you even said it yourself. Yeah. Most of us have family trauma. Most of us have trauma in our family history, but not everybody manifests this inherited family trauma. Why is this? Why do some people seem to relive and others don't? And, you know, epigenetics is one piece of the puzzle, like we talked about. But what seems to anchor these traumas? What creates these repetitions is when the traumas aren't talked about. When the healing is incomplete because the pain or the grief is too great or the embarrassment or the shame, you know, it's too great and we want to avoid it. Or, or the people in our family system, they're, they're excluded or rejected because, um, you know, grandpa was the alcoholic and he cheated on grandma, grandma and he left, you know, five children and grandma in this terrible, poor state. Um, but basically, there's not been any resolution. Mm -hmm. Then aspects of these traumas show up in later generations. Unconsciously, we'll repeat the pattern or share a similar unhappiness until that trauma finally has a chance to heal. You know, Freud talked about this 100 years ago. He observed what he called repetition compulsion, that the trauma keeps repeating, tra traumatic reenactment, uh, until the contraction of the trauma, which is ultimately seeking expansion, finds fertile ground for that to happen. So, yeah, we have to, we have to pay attention. We have to see it. And we have to heal it if we want to, we want to stop it from, from going on. You know, if this pattern, we need to stop it. We want to, we have to be able to see it and heal it. And what, would you mind sharing the other three um, unconscious themes that you share in the book? Sure. So one of them I just mentioned, when we reject a parent, we not only reject that parent's behavior um, in them, but we can't see it in ourselves. We can't see when we're similar. Mm. So if we reject a parent for being distant or uh, ignoring us, we can't see when we're distant or we ignore others because we've rejected that behavior. Not only that, but when we reject a parent, we'll pull in a partner 
who does the same thing to us. So if we reject a parent for being cold, that's our template, that's our blueprint. We'll pull in a partner who's cold or pull in a partner who ignores us. Um, or we'll even make that partner be cold or ignore us by always waiting for him or her to be cold or ignore us. You know, we're, we're hypervigilant, waiting for that parent to do this, partner to do the same thing. Or we'll reject ourselves. For example, if the parent ignored us, we'll ignore the little part of us. If the parent was critical, we'll, be, we'll become self-critical. If the parent was aggressive, we'll become inwardly aggressive, doing to ourselves. So the other theme, okay, theme one, we've merged with a parent. Theme two, we've rejected a parent. Theme three, we have a break in the attachment with our mother. Or our mother had a break with her mother, or our dad had a break with his mother. That's all inherited. Or theme four, we're identified with someone other than the parents, like a grandmother, a grandmother or a grandfather who who experienced um, some type of adversity. I, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. I one time worked with this woman who was consumed with anxiety when she was pregnant. And I said, what's going on? She goes, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And I said, when did it start? And she said, seven months ago. All I know is I'm just terribly anxious. And I said, what happened seven months ago? And she said, well, that's when I got pregnant. And I said, What's your worst fear? Remember that question we talked about? What's your worst fear of being a mother? And she said, I'll harm my baby. Oh. And this was in the middle of her anxiety, but she didn't, never fished it out. Mm -hmm. She never um, uh, distilled it. So I said, and, and have you ever harmed a baby? She said, no. And I said, did anyone in your family ever harm a baby? And she said, no. Oh, my goodness. She was about to say no. And then she remembered her grandmother, who when the grandmother was a young mother, she lit a candle and it caught the curtains on fire. And then it caught the house on fire and the baby was sleeping upstairs and the grandmother couldn't get the baby out and the mm. baby died. And then the woman said, but we were never allowed to talk about it, which goes to that oh, thing. Whenever something's go. excluded or rejected, mm. it repeats. And, but she was identified with her grandmother's experience of losing a baby, of, harm, of accidentally harming a baby. So those are my four themes which I teach in the book. And you know, I, I teach the reader how to look for it in their own mm -hmm. lives and then how to draw their genogram, their traumagram, and connect which of the four themes is going on and then to look for their trauma language, the things they say off the cuff or when they're stressed and how to link it in the family history so we can stop, break this, you know, the last part of my book, the first part of my book is called, It Didn't Start With You. The last part of the title is called How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And that's the key. We've got to end the cycle. So I spend the last third of my book teaching practices several of them visualization practices to break this cycle so we can protect our kids from this pattern going forward. Mm. I, dear listener, I think both you and I need to listen to this again <laughs> a couple times. I, wanted, I want us to be able to absorb all this 
knowledge, these, these things, I hope that you're getting some ahas because um, I am. And, and I didn't even get to ask you, Mark, of course, about your own wonderful story, which dear listener, you're going to have to read in the book because it's kind of amazing. He got his sight back. Um, and, um, and it's, it's an incredible um, story. Well told. Mark, I, I can't um, thank you enough for coming on the podcast and for the work that you're doing with, um, with this work that you're doing. I think that what you're pointing to is a path of turning these ghosts into ancestors and to, you know, to integrating all of this suffering and this information and these things that we have in our life and integrating it in a way so that we can live in peace and we can pass on more peace and more compassion and and more acceptance and understanding to our kids. And it really does start with learning and understanding and and seeing clearly. And what you're helping us to do is to is to see clearly. And I, I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you, Hunter, for having me on. I really enjoyed our talk. So if go out and find the book. It didn't start with you. And Mark, where can uh where else can people find you um in the world and if they want to reach out and ask questions? Um uh, I think my my website be a good place to start. Uh, Mark Woolin, W-O-L-Y-N-N dot com. And also Facebook, Instagram, everywhere. Uh really. Okay. And, um yeah. And I, 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 t- I could probably to come back, have you back and talk to you about this for another four hours, but I, um, we'll see. It was, it's been a great pleasure and, um, yeah. And I, I really thank you and wish you a, wish you a beautiful day. You too, Hunter. Thanks for having me. Wow. 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 I'm going to need to listen to this conversation again. And again, I think it's so powerful and it's so exciting for me to know that the work that we do in mindful parenting that I talk about in Raising Good Humans is this work that heals it. Oh, wow. I mean, it's amazing to think that whole like, you know, changing generational patterns. This is so key to everything I do. It's so important. It's really the heart of what I want to do is change generational patterns and to hear this from Marcos. Awesome. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen again, share it with friends, share it with people. This is information that really needs to get out there, don't you think? So, you know, one way I share a podcast is I take a screenshot and I send it to my book club friends. So you could do that. You can let me know what you thought about it, of course. Tag me in Instagram or Facebook. And of course, I hope you'll join me in like doing some of this work to change these generational patterns and you can do it completely for free at the during the mindful parenting free training and it's going to be no uh september 9th through 14th we're going to be talking about why your kids don't listen to you we're going to you're going to learn how to transform yourself and your responses really to create these the families you wanted you're going to learn how to stop yelling how to parent during this crazy pandemic, and three myths that keep you from being the parent you want to be. So I hope you'll join me. It is so eye-opening and supportive and incredible place to be. I hope you'll be there with me at the Mindful Parenting live training. And you can join 
that, go ahead and do it now before you get distracted with something else. It's at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And I hope you'll, of course, let me know that you're a podcast listener and I will say hello to you there and welcome you with open arms virtually from afar as we're doing all the things these days. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, I hope that this has been powerful for you as it was for me, clearly. I'm wishing you a beautiful week. I'm wishing you some peace, some calm, some joy. And I cannot wait to be back in your ears next week. We'll be talking to Jen Lumenlin about the what the research, the scientific research says about how to parent. So don't miss that one. And I will see you there. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste.